Welcome to the Daring Mighty Things podcast, a show about the dreamers and the doers at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, also known as JPL. In every episode, we try to give you a behind-the-scenes look at the lives and journeys of the folks working on unique missions in support of humanity's need to explore the universe and the stars. I'm your host, Patricia Lenny. And I'm your other host, Lainey James. And before we get started, we wanted to take a moment to remind you to follow us at NASA JPL Careers on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And if you're ready to dare mighty things, check out open opportunities at jpl.jobs. From small town farm girl to beauty school dropout to JPL engineer, today we are joined by the incredible Michelle Easter, a JPL mechatronics engineer helping build robotic technology to explore other planets without forgetting about helping our own. At the beginning of the COVID pandemic, Michelle was part of an elite team of engineers who developed a ventilator using commonly available parts, gaining emergency FDA approval in under 38 days that is now available for use worldwide. This is in addition to her work on Earth-observing spacecraft and robotic systems for the Mars rover, the Mars Sample Return Mission Orbiter, and Europa Clipper. Michelle is an alum of Hunter College and Stevens Institute of Technology, where she studied mechanical engineering. In her free time, Michelle works with several groups and nonprofit organizations who encourage women and underrepresented communities to pursue careers in STEM. So welcome, Michelle. We're really happy to have you here today. Thank you so much. It's great to be here with you. And so let's get into it. What would you say you do here as a mechatronics engineer? Well, for such a complicated job title, it comes with a lot of different types of tasks. Um, so mechatronics is kind of this hybrid discipline of engineering. It's similar to robotics. Um, and it involves uh, elements of mechanism design, structural mechanical design, electronics, and software. Uh, so it's a very interdisciplinary discipline in general. Um, and what I do each day depends largely on where in the phase the project is. And that actually makes my job super fun. Um, there's never a dull moment. Uh, there's always different types of things to be done. And um, I can spend blocks of time maybe working in CAD, doing modeling. Um, I spend a lot of time running tests, kind of flipping switches and hitting buttons, so to speak, in a very hands-on way. Um, I get to oversee assembly of flight hardware. Um, and ultimately right now for Mars sample return, um, I'm the mechanical lead for um, a subsystem of hardware that has multiple mechanisms um, and will use electronics and software to operate. Um, and for that system, I oversee the design of all of those mechanism systems and how do they come together to meet the requirements that the, the end effector essentially has to meet. So, Michelle, tell us a little bit, what is the purpose of Mars Sample Return in case our audience doesn't know? Mars Sample Return is a complex series of projects and it is ultimately the desire is to bring back Martian rock samples to Earth so that we can bring them into Earth-based laboratories where we have more extensive scientific instruments to study them. And I mentioned it's a multi-project mission. So Mars Perseverance rover is the first element of Mars sample return. So the rover landed uh, just over a year ago. Uh, we had our land anniversary in February, which was... Woo! Super exciting. There was a party here. We had a party. We yeah. saw people in person. It was amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I saw a photo of you on uh, social media. 
I was wearing a the the Perseverance Rover thing skirt parachute the parachute the parachute yeah yeah, yeah. when I saw that I knew that I needed it a line mini skirt with a Rover parachute print done I need that. And just for the the folks out there who don't know, when uh, Perseverance landed in Mars as part of its maneuver to slow down, it deploys a parachute. And uh, the folks here at JPL printed in the parachute this code, code, right, that read, they're mighty things. Yes. And they did it using a color representation of binary. Uh, which is really interesting. And I love that because it's a it's an example of using art integrated with uh, science and engineering to communicate and right. inspire. And it was an Easter egg in that nobody knew, even, even us at JPL didn't know. Some of us didn't know that it was happening. I didn't know. And, yeah. <laughs> and uh, so folks on, uh, you know, out there, our audience saw it and and figured it out on their own that the parachute, the the, the pattern in the parachute spelled something out. So. so I think that's one of the fun things about JPL is these Easter eggs. Talking about Easter eggs with Michelle Easter, I had to get that in there. <laughs> Absolutely. I was like, it was too good to pass up. <laughs> I knew it, it was coming. I knew it was, it was coming. It, you knew the it was setup coming. Was great. It's like, which one of us was going to do it? Um, <laughs> but that, you know, we do have that type of, you know, creativity yeah. and, and, and fun and that we want people to be excited about these missions. And then it's awesome when it's a surprise to people who are working on the mission to see that, that you know, kind of the motto of JPL, the unofficial model is Dare Mighty Things and that they snuck that in there. And, and the uh, name of our podcast. And the name of our <laughs> podcast, right? And, and and also the coordinates of the lab, I believe, were, were part of the Oh, that was part code. of the parachute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's the coordinates of JPL. So, um, and I, I think the thing that we didn't talk about, and which I'm going to ask Michelle mm-hmm. to talk about, is why that code was even on the parachute? Was it for aesthetics? What was the purpose? Oh, that's a good question. I don't know the answer to that, but if I had to guess, I would assume that it's more related to people being excited about their work. Um, uh, I'll take that back. Uh, On one element, embedding the message uh, and using the color coding is exciting and fun. And and as you mentioned, people really get excited about work here. Um, But if I had to guess, I would assume that maybe it's a fiducial um, and a fiducial is a pattern that a computer vision system can recognize and essentially read uh, to orient itself either, um, you know, spatially to know which way something is pointing or something like that. Oh, wow. So there was, there's actually, a, there was actually a technical purpose probably behind that. I mean, that's my guess. That. I would have to ask whoever would deliver that I parachute. Think, I think you were correct. Probably. So I had read that, too, and I was thinking, it was like, how did, how did we get away with that? And is that there was a technical purpose mm-hmm. um, for that in, in helping uh, the rover land. So may as well make it fun, too. Exactly, yeah. for sure. <laughs> so real quickly, tell us what, you know, you talked about you've done a lot of different things, you know, um, as a mechatronics engineer. But kind of what is your, you walk into your lab, what is just a typical day like for Michelle as a mechatronics engineer? Typical day. There is no typical day, but I will try to answer you anyways. Um, so I oversee uh, I oversee a clean room lab as part of my responsibilities, and I'm also the mechanical lead for this Mars sample return uh, hardware. So I have meetings every day, um, either remote or in person, where I'll you know sit and meet with other engineers to try to work out uh, system details or maybe technical implementation details about um, our design. Um, I do spend some time, hopefully, working on my own, kind of uh, working out details, doing uh, analyses. 
Um, and I also often visit the lab. Maybe I have to oversee moving new equipment in or certifying a chamber or maybe help somebody get some equipment set up to run a test or maybe I'm overseeing a test that I'm running of my own. Um, so it, it really depends. Every day is super different, but it's a combination of working in small groups, you know, kind of on focus topics, working in bigger groups uh, with more different types of people to have interchange discussions, um, sometimes doing solo work that involves design, sometimes overseeing and kind of conducting other people's work, sometimes even doing hands-on work myself. So it, it really depends on the day. And that's one of my favorite things about my job because I'm a very energetic person. I have, um, for somebody who made it through engineering school, I have a relatively short attention span. So, <laughs> it's, you know, I like to have a lot of different things going on, a lot of action. I like to be very stimulated, and uh, I definitely get that in my role here. That's awesome. So there's hope for all of us, really, because I feel like I also have a very, a very short attention span, and that's why I probably <laughs> I didn't pursue a career in STEM, but now I feel like you know, maybe. I yeah. find that I just have to multitask and I spend a little bit of time on, you know, one task until I kind of hit a wall and then I switch gears, move to another task. And then in taking time away from task, you kind of cue it in the background, process stuff. And I'm one of those like wake up in the middle of the night. Aha. Uh -huh. You know, ah, you know, first <laughs> thing in the morning, go back to that task that I got roadblocked on the day before and pick it back up. Have a notepad in, you know, your oh, yeah. bedside table in the middle of the night I've got so that you don't forget. And back of the envelope and stuff all yeah. over the house. <laughs> well, that is a perfect segue into our next segment, talking about how you like to do a lot of different things. So we like to ask each of our guests about their own personal EDL to JPL. And for our listeners out there who are unfamiliar with that term, EDL, it stands for Entry, Descent, and Landing of a Spacecraft as we land on another planet. So missions work for years on this part. This is where we know if you fail or succeed with your landing of the spacecraft. So we'd like to chat with you about your EDL and your Entry, Descent, and Landing to your career here at JPL. So let's start with your entry. You have done a lot of different things before you even got to, to JPL. So tell us a little bit about your background, Michelle, like growing up, your, your first careers, and then how you, how you transitioned into engineering. So I've definitely taken a windy kind of uh, a beaten path, I'll say, to get to JPL. Uh, but it's been fun, and it's really helped to develop a whole bunch of different unexpected skills uh, in me that are useful uh, in engineering. Um, I guess starting in the beginning, I, I was born and raised on a farm. And we had livestock. I grew up raising like cows, chickens, sheep. Um, so I grew up doing manual labor. And I was a total daddy's girl. You know, I was like in the passenger seat of the pickup truck. I want to go fix the bulldozer with dad. And, you know, I spent my early years doing stuff in that regard, stringing up barbed wire fences and whatnot. And um, learning how to use power tools to do woodworking, which uh, ends up coming up later, of course. <laughs> and I never knew what engineering, though, was. I mean, I grew up on a farm. I knew what farming was. I liked animals, but I didn't want to be a farmer. So um, I didn't necessarily see that as a path. And because I wasn't familiar with engineering, I didn't realize that it was giving me super valuable skills that could be transferred to engineering. Uh, hindsight. <laughs> so fast forward, um, I was definitely always interested in science. Uh, growing up on a farm, I was always exploring. I was like barefoot climbing trees, collecting leaves, learning how to identify plants, catching tadpoles back in the creek and seeing how long we could keep them alive for. I was like, you know, very hands-on and very exploratory. And that stuck. Uh, that always stuck. And I'm still very <laughs> much that way. 
Um, I can just see now Michelle out out in her backyard looking for, you know, frogs or something to catch. Oh, yeah. I used to dig up earthworms and I would, you know, have handfuls of worms. And my older sister, God bless her, she was not like me. (laughs) She would run screaming. "Ah!" And I'm like, what? But they're so cool. One day, Lainey will share with us her own frog story that uh, <laughs> comes up sometimes. That, but that's in the, the th- after show that- notes of the podcast. <laughs> we're just going to leave that show. My, my frog trauma. Her, her oh, frog no. trauma. Oh, no. Bad. Oh, man. So you said, so I. So we talked to you earlier. You said something really interesting um, about how you didn't really see yourself in mm-hmm. sort of this, this, you know, studying STEM. You saw it practically as you were growing up, but then when you would go to school, you didn't quite feel like that was where you fit in. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, totally. So I, um, I, gosh, when I hit middle school, I went through, I feel like everybody says this, I went through an ugly duckling phase. I was really tall and skinny and gangly. So I, I'm 5'9 now. I was 5'9 in middle school. I felt enormous. And um, at the same time, you know, my mom is a brilliant woman. She's very feminine. And I was always playing dress up in her, you know, high heels, scuffing Mm -hmm. around the house, playing with her makeup. Middle school, she finally let me start wearing makeup. Yes. So I was like so happy, you know. Um, But then I'm like going to school and I'm, um, you know, not seeing other people in my science classes or in my science teachers that I could physically identify with. Um, I wasn't surrounded by other young women and certainly not other young women who physically I felt like I looked like. And in middle school, I was, you know, pretty awkward and felt kind of uncomfortable about that. Um, I think everybody goes through a middle school identity crisis, you know. But the way that it impacted me was actually when I went into high school, I remember the day I made a decision. I want to be around other tall girls so that I don't feel like an ogre. And so I signed up for volleyball. And I had no interest in playing sports, you know. (laughs) I don't want to play volleyball. I just want to be around other tall girls so I feel like I blend in, you know. And so, uh, you know, from that moment, it kind of like marked a pivot where I started, you know, associating myself with people that I felt like I looked like so I could feel like I fit in. And um, in high school, of course, people started growing and they caught up, which, oh, God, that was a relief. So I didn't feel like such an ogre anymore. Not for me. I never caught up, ever. (laughs) I was the same way. I grew my full height by the time I was 12. I was the tallest. And now I'm definitely not (laughs) 5'9". So Listen, my um, 11-year-old is almost taller than me now. Oh, my gosh. That's so funny. God, kids these days, man. So you kind of pivoted your your interests and kind of who you're spending time with and the things that you were you know, showing interest for because you wanted to belong. And yeah, and the other element that plays a part in this, which is interesting, is that uh, we had a foreign language requirement. I grew up in the country where there's like, it's almost all white people, you know, and that was very boring to me. And when I had to take a foreign language, I took Spanish and I was like, oh, my God, I love this. You mean I can learn a foreign language and it means that now I can communicate with like millions of people all over the world that are also starting to move into our town because we were having Spanish speaking people finally start to, you know, granted, I'm showing my age, but this was decades ago, you know. (laughs) Um, And I got really excited by foreign language and I realized that I am capable of learning language quickly. So this is actually what really... Like I gravitated to mm-hmm. in high school. I'm very social. I'm super people person. 
and I just loved learning this language. So I ended up taking six years of Spanish mm -hmm. in three years of high school. Oh, wow. I took my SAT twos in Spanish, and I started tutoring both English and Spanish. Um, and then I ended up uh, starting to do volunteer work uh, for um, a local nonprofit that does, uh, I don't know if they still are around anymore. Again, this was a cu couple decades ago, but uh, they were providing uh, free services to um, foreign nationals that were moving into the area to get assimilated with our small town kind of uh, mm -hmm. county. And so I got super wrapped up into that. I honestly totally kind of forgot about my love for science almost. And another key element was that we did not have a physics class in my high school. Mm -hmm. And I can't even imagine what I would have done if I would have been exposed to physics in high school because that to me was like the wow science. Biology didn't do it for me. Mm -hmm. Chemistry didn't do it for me. Physics. So you never, you never had to build a little bridge. That was like the, the, the physics, all the physics classes had to build a little bridge a toothpick, you, you, using, you know, a, yeah, yeah, like little wooden things. Oh, and we then you that have in to, college, okay. mechanical. I'm like, this is familiar. I saw this in a cartoon once. <laughs> oh, that was like the thing that you did in physics classes back yeah. then. So um, they, they didn't have physics. What, what did you do after high school then? So after high school, um, I had made up my mind that I wanted to pursue foreign language. And I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do with it, but I thought I want to try to learn as many languages as I can. Um, and I decided I wanted to go to American University, which was in uh, D.C., and they have a great international program. And they had uh, a major option, which was like international communications or something. So I thought, oh, maybe I'll major in international communications and then just minor in a bunch of languages. What did I want to do with that? I have no idea. Um, well, at the time, you know, my, uh, my family, uh, they basically were kind of like, well, why don't you go to like a cheaper school for a couple of years, like get your bearings, you know, make sure you know what you want to do and then transfer over. And I really didn't want to do that. I, God bless my parents. They were so patient with me. I totally pivoted 180. And I was like, you know what? Actually, instead, I want to be a makeup artist. <laughs> that that is a pivot. That is a yeah. <laughs> so, so I started pursuing makeup, and this had kind of started like while I was doing the volunteer work, um, uh, tutoring in Spanish and whatnot. Because I started working part time for my first makeup job was at Victoria's Secret Beauty in the local mall. So I'm like selling makeup, and I like loved this. So I decided to go to uh, cosmetology school. So this is fun. This is fun. I'm going to give you guys some dirt <laughs> work. I'm sure people will make fun of me for this, but it's okay. <laughs> So I, I assumed you have to go to cosmetology school to be a makeup artist. Cosmetology school involves learning how to do hair. Okay, there's a big difference between makeup, which is painting, and hair, which is sculpting. And <laughs> I, I, That's a good point. I hadn't thought of it that way, but you're absolutely right. There are too many hairs on each head. <laughs> that I can't, like the OCD is crazy with me. I, I was told by my instructor after a very small stint in beauty school that no client would ever sit in my chair long enough to receive my services. So I had to drop out. And thus I became a beauty school dropout. <laughs> Which I think is is uh, my my favorite tagline that, you know, for this episode is beauty school dropout to NASA JPL engineer. 
<laughs> I think it's really, you know, props to your instructor, you oh, know, yeah. for just Sign laying it, like it, it down is. like yeah. it is. You, you know? would be great at something else. <laughs> have, you, have you considered <laughs> physics? Yeah. Oh, God. If he, if he had known. but so, so, I, so instead, you know, the way I interpret it is like I can't do hair for sure, but I still wanted to do makeup. So I found an esthetician school. And I realized that you can go to esthetician school and you can get a license in like skincare and aesthetics and do makeup without having to do a single hair on anybody's head. Eyebrow hair is fine, but that's it, you know. Mm -hmm. So I did that and I got my makeup artist license. And when I finished, I, I really loved it. And I went to my instructor and I said, how can I get more training? And at the time, uh, there was a Westmore Academy uh, in Burbank, which is one of the special effects uh, makeup schools mm -hmm. out here in Southern California. And my instructor recommended that I come out here. So I decided, all right, you know what? I'm going to do a stint in Burbank, and I'm going to go out there and get my makeup artist license or, you know, extra training and then come back. And I moved to Southern California, and I was like, oh, I'm not going back for sure. And I, I ended up staying um, for five years based mm -hmm. in L.A. after that. Um, and so uh, I got my special effects training. And my first year out of uh, my makeup training school, I did a couple independent movies, one of which was a zombie movie, which was fun. Nice. I was going to ask, yeah, if there was any any movies that we should check out. Well, I was like, I, I have to, yeah, hear about the special effects makeup. So stuff. there's one that I was key in. It was a really small independent movie called Flourish. And actually, there's uh, some actors in there that uh, were in-house. Uh, you know, the, the medical uh, sitcom. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. They were wonderful. Um, and then actually there was a girl, uh, Leighton Meester, who later went on to go to do Gossip Girl. Gossip Girl, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So she was one of the actors. It was a great cast. Uh, so Flourish was one of them. And then um, I also uh, helped support one called Bottoms Up, which uh, starred Paris Hilton. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. okay. So that was fun. Um, but... I very quickly, uh, just being in Los Angeles, I started getting offered modeling jobs. And I didn't mention this, but when I was in Maryland, I started doing part-time modeling jobs through a local agency, just promotional modeling. Um, and so when I realized, oh, in Southern California, there's jobs out here and you're going to pay me to walk back and forth for an hour, like a few <laughs> hundred dollars, I can do that for sure. Get All your <laughs> steps in, you yeah. know, and yeah, get paid. Because I was uh, freelancing doing makeup. So I just found it as a way to fill my income. Right. And then very quickly, I realized it's a lot cheaper and easier to model than it is to do makeup because I don't have to bring my kit or buy mm -hmm. any of this stuff, deal with um, expenses in the same regard. And so I started taking modeling jobs, and then it kind of climaxed when uh, I decided to uh, sign with an agency, and I got offered a contract to go to South Korea to work for two months, um, just to work the local market. And that opened up a whole new chapter for me, because I didn't realize that there was a job where you can go to the country and just work for a little bit, and then go to the next country and work for a little bit, and so forth. Wow, I yeah. was like, what? I mean, I hadn't left the country besides driving over the border to Tijuana one time. So I was <laughs> like, oh, you know? Yeah. So I, I ended up uh, pretty much abandoning the makeup and pursuing working as a fashion model full-time for a handful of years after that. Yeah, I was going to say, how many years did you do that for? So I started, oh man, any of my old agents that are listening to this are going to be groaning because all models lie about their age. I was 18 <laughs> for like four years straight. Or so the truth is, I, I think I'm, I'm still 18. I don't know what you're I'm, talking about. I, I'm perpetually. I, uh, yeah. My birthday king's had 21 on the candles this year. So that means something. 
Um, so I, I started really full-time modeling. I must have been 20, and I didn't stop until I was a full-time engineering student at Stevens Institute, which is fast-forwarding quite a bit, when I was 28 or something. So maybe it was eight years, about. Okay. So you were also kind of a, a non-traditional student when you made, you decided okay, it's time to make a pivot. So yeah, so let's talk about that moment, right? So we've talked a little bit about how you went down this path, modeling, makeup. There's a moment when you're you're 28 years old, you've kind of seen the world, and and all of a sudden you come across this, this one opportunity that totally changes your trajectory. Tell us a little bit about that. So there's a couple things that led up to this, because honestly it took a lot of psychological changes for me to switch to engineering. I'm sure that's not a stretch to understand. Um, so, uh, so after South Korea, I started traveling internationally pretty much constantly. So I worked uh, a couple months each time in a handful of markets, uh, Italy, twice in Athens, twice in Dubai. I even did a stint in Lebanon. Um, I was in London for a couple months. Um, so I was traveling around quite a bit. And then um, after several years, I reached a period where I was like, all right, I want to stay in one city for a while because it was kind of exhausting. I'd do a few months international, fly back, flip my suitcases, resublet my apartment, go back out. So I decided to stay in one place for a while. So I decided to stay in L.A. where I was based. And then the recession hits. And the recession took a little while to hit the fashion market. But when it did, I moved to New York because there's more work in New York. So when I got to New York, I had like a huge paradigm shift because I was really inspired and motivated by how hardworking and how focused on merit many New Yorkers are. And they almost have to be because the cost of living is so high and the lifestyle is so aggressive. But I'm an East Coaster at heart, you know, and I like was really motivated by by this. Um, and then combined with that, uh, the first thing that happened is I read a book that totally changed my life. And the book is called Real Education by Charles Murray. And it's really interesting. The intention for the book is uh, essentially the topic is education reform in America. And the author writes about how in America we tell kids you have to go to college right after high school. And if you don't, you're a failure, you know, and you know, everybody when high school graduations come in is talking about where's your kid going, where's your kid, everybody has to go to college. And so the author is writing this book and he's talking about how for some students it could be psychologically detrimental for them to be forced into higher education because they don't perform well in academia. For some people it could result in them incurring some massive debt where they're studying a discipline that they're not even going to use and then they have to deal right. with that anchor. Um, and so there's a number of reasons why college isn't for everyone. And he talks about how, um, you know, if somebody wants to own their own uh, auto repair shop, for example, they can do that without having a college degree and own their own business and have a great life. Mm -hmm. And in reading all of his arguments about how college is not for some people, I actually had the reverse realization. And I remembered when I was a little girl Back in those, before I cared about how I looked or how other people thought I looked or anything, I remembered how good it made me feel to do things with my brain, you know, to come up with an idea. Like when I was little, I was always coming up with projects. I started a, um, a soda can, uh, uh, what are they called, six-pack tab recycling program at my mm -hmm. school. I built... Um, 
uh, a three-dimensional topographical map that was a replica of my town from the original 1800s, and I hand-painted all the little original houses from old photographs. I, like, I was always doing stuff, mm -hmm. and I felt so good, like, from producing things out of my imagination and my mind that I realized, I bet you if I went to school, it would actually probably really boost my self-esteem mm -hmm. and my self-confidence. Like, I would probably have the opposite effects of what he's describing. Mm -hmm. And so... I decided to sign up for one semester as a part-time non-degree student, so like minimal commitment, and I signed up for three classes. And what classes do I pick? Because the last thing that I remembered liking was Spanish. Oh, okay, yeah. You know, I hadn't been in school. So, I, so my first three classes I picked were English writing and uh, intermediate uh, Spanish conversation and Greek and Latin roots of the English language. Oh, I totally guessed wrong because I was going to yell physics and then I was, like, I, I yeah, was wrong. I, 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 <laughs> what yet, what a turn. Yeah, that, that is a turn. To me, it felt yeah. like not a pivot though, you know, because I'm like, oh, okay, this is just picking back up where I left off. It's almost like uh, you still weren't ready to take that plunge to some extent. You, you were trying to kind of get back to it and you were still connecting with things that you, you knew you liked that were very overtly things that you had liked, which was languages, it sounds like. So it was like a kind of like dipping your toe, like, okay, I'll try these things out. Yes. And the other element that was a huge part of this decision is that um, not necessarily in the class selection, but about the part-time non-degree and only picking three classes is I had gotten used to my job requiring me to go wherever at the drop of a hat. So I didn't know that I was going to be able to stay in one city for a whole semester. And this was, you know, years ago where they weren't doing like the remote class thing. Right. So I didn't even know if I could make it through a semester and like actually show up in that chair. So this was like a test for me. Can I deal with yeah. something that is pretty structured? And what I found was that I love structure. Who would have thunk? You know, I thought that uh -huh. I wanted to have freedom. You know, I thought that I loved... I can pick whatever country. I'm going to go here and work there for a couple months, and then I want to go there and work there. I mean, I do. You know, that is fun, and it's exciting. But I can excel so much with structure. And then all of that excitement energy that I have, mm -hmm. I can focus into my work, and I have an existing structure so that I just show up and I, you know, essentially produce things with my brain without having to use my own brain power on the mm -hmm. survival and coordination efforts. So in hindsight, it's kind of obvious to me, but... It was shocking. I was like, oh, I love this. Yeah. I'm definitely going to do more school. Okay. So, all right. So I finished that semester. I got all A's. I was so proud of myself. <laughs> Showed up at class every day. I don't even know if I took a sick day, you know? Um, and so, uh, so then it was summer. I hadn't signed up for summer classes because I wasn't a real professional student yet. I wasn't really in the vibe. Um, and uh, fashion work for models slows down in the summer. Mm. Uh, the industry is such that the whole month of August, the whole industry is closed. Everybody goes on vacation. Uh, the exception is like Asia. The Asian market's never closed. Um, so summer is slow, and that's fine. And then September opens. You have fashion weeks and everything, like, picks back up. So, so summer was a little slow, and that's fine. So I had downtime for a personal project. So I had recently gotten my first uh, puppy. He was a puppy at the time. I have two dogs now, but... So Rex, and he is a Japanese chin, which for him, that means he's a seven-pound little fluff ball with bug eyes and a smush <laughs> face. Um, and I was obsessed with him. So I decided as a personal project that I was going to build him a doghouse. 
And I've got my collection of woodworking tools that I've been carrying around from apartment to apartment since my farming days. Impressive. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Wow. And you know, all this time I've been using them to create art. Um, I like paintings, so I had like at my house I have some acrylic paintings on the wall that I've done. And back then I would pull over on the side of the road and pick up old pallets and then cut them apart and mm-hmm. use like scrap lumber for art projects and stuff. So I found a use for my power tools. <laughs> but so fast forward, I'm like, I'm gonna build a doghouse. So I start by measuring my dog. So I stand him in front of me, I get my tape measure, and I measure the little width of his little torso and his little height to the top of his little noggin and like the little length of it to the tip of his little fluffy tail. See, I would totally just would have eyeballed that. Uh, right? Like, I feel like the same, same. I had more free time than I care to admit it. <laughs> so I measure him. And then so I, I started sketching. And I the idea that I wanted is I wanted the front of the doghouse to look like his face but kind of a cartoon, simplified version, such that the door of the doghouse would be his mouth. And when he stands in the doorway, the little doorway would perfectly frame his little body so that it was looking like he's standing in his own mouth. So it's like a dog inception exactly. doghouse. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so this is my concept. So I sketch it out, and I had, um, my family has a sawmill, um, as good you know country folk do. And so I uh, drove down and picked up some lumber um, and brought it back up. And so given the lumber that I had, uh, you know, I sketched out, all right, you know, I'm going to cut these planks and then I'm going to assemble them side by side like this. And then I sketched out the cutouts that I would make in each one for the little eyes and the mouth and assemble it all, t- all together. I airbrushed it. I had an airbrush from doing airbrush makeup, which I now repurposed to <laughs> painting Rex's doghouse. I get like a nice ombre gold kind of flame (laughs) effect coming from the bottom. And then when I got to the roof, I was like, all right, what should I do? You know, it's New York is super hot in the summer and my dog has like tons of fur. So I'm worried about his puppy comfort. Of course, of course. Naturally, as the dog mom does. (laughs) So I'm like, you know what? Maybe I should put like some kind of ventilation in the roof. So I started, like, Googling stuff. Mm-hmm. And I was not a professional Googler at this time because the whole time that I was modeling and doing other stuff is when Google came about. So that was a whole culture shock in and of itself. But I started trying to figure out how to Google information about ventilation systems. And I stumbled across this idea of using a little fan that uh, comes in like a desktop computer. You know, they have those little ventilation fans. Oh, yeah. I think they call them, like, muffin fans or something. So I'm like, oh, that's a fun idea. What if I put a little fan Mm. in the ceiling? Well, how would I power that fan? So then I'm Googling, how do you power a fan? And I stumbled across on eBay, you can buy solar cells that have chips or cracks in them. So they they have a reduced Mm. efficiency, uh, but they're cheap. And I'm like, okay, well, that's interesting. What if I put solar cells on his little doghouse roof? That'd be so cute. So now I'm all excited. Well, how many solar cells do I need? You know, I'm like, okay, well, they have reduced efficiency. So then I start Googling how to calculate surface area of reduced efficiency solar cell, c- cells to power a muffin fan, you know? And I'm, and so I found the calculation because it's a simple, you know, I'll say simple algebraic equation. And I ended up determining that I was going to have to build like three awnings for his doghouse to get enough surface area for these solar panels to work. So I'm like, all right, this is ridiculous. (laughs) No solar. Sorry, Rex. And I scrapped the idea and I ended up saying, okay, let me implement a passive ventilation system where I put strategic vents in the roof to allow hot air to rise Mm -hmm. naturally out uh, and ventilate through the ceiling. Mm -hmm. And at some point in the middle of all this, I realized, you know, I am out here by myself 
doing this for fun. Nobody's helping me, and I have no education. I mean, I've been out of high school for a decade, mm-hmm. and I'm able to figure this out, you know? And so I kind of started wondering, if I actually got a technical education, I bet you I could do some cool stuff. Yeah. And like that simple, simple thought is what prompted me for my next semester to try physics. Physics. <laughs> physics, intro to computer science, and um, pre-calculus. And were you still just auditing those classes or by that point had you sort of made that decision of like, I want to work towards a degree? I was still a, not, not auditing, it was a part-time non-degree, which is a classification that allows you to accumulate the credit, but you're not matriculated such that it doesn't count towards a diploma. Mm-hmm. So yes, I was still in this like purgatory state, basically. Okay. I think Um, it's interesting what you said about uh, sort of Google and uh, Googling things to find out how to to do that. I mean, that has – And that has grown so much even since back then that I bet there's folks out there who are listening who have learned a lot. I mean, think about makeup. And you go on YouTube nowadays and you learn how to do incredible makeup. You can go on on YouTube and learn how to do – you know, how to build a doghouse. And – Maybe folks don't see how they can take some of that and and formalize it into a career path that then actually allows them to do that for a living. So I just think it's really interesting that you you're you're watching these things, you're learning that can turn into one day working at a place like JPL or on NASA missions or on really cool projects. So totally, yeah, totally, and that is. One of the amazing powers of the internet is yeah. the access to educational information. Right. People can, you know, there are some jobs that will require you to have a degree. There are some jobs that won't. But in either case, you can teach yourself almost everything you need to know on the internet, mm-hmm. you know, and maybe that just makes getting your degree easier. Right, right, right. So, Michelle, let's talk about a little bit and maybe do a little bit of a jump to you're in this purgatory. How do you find JPL? So that's a good question, too. It was challenging for me to get uh, from that initial stage into JPL. So even getting out of purgatory was hard because I had to become matriculated. And uh, so that first semester, or my first science semester, I'll say, (laughs) where I took my, my physics and computer science and math, I just, God, I can't even explain how much it like opened up my mind. And then also like to learn that I can be good at things like math and science and stuff. I mean, I kind of thought that I knew that when I was little, but I didn't mm-hmm. really know it, you know. Um, so that was really empowering. I got addicted. I was like, oh my God, I want to full force just do engineering. I want to build stuff. So um, after that second semester of my classes, though, I had reached a maximum allowable amount of credits that I was able to acquire with this purgatory status. Mm -hmm. And so I actually had all of my professors write letters on my behalf to the dean of the university to please override and matriculate Michelle Easter so that she may be allowed to take classes the next semester. Because I hit a wall where I wouldn't be allowed to Mm -hmm. even take more classes as a part-time non-degree student because I hit this weird maximum without just applying to be a full-time student and going through that process. So I got matriculated. That was great. Um, And then I started focusing on, okay, how do I get into engineering school? Because I was at Hunter College. They didn't have an engineering program. And I really wanted to do 
mechanical engineering. Mm -hmm. And so I got a mentor who was my first physics professor. Um, he adopted me. I like would go up, sit in the front row of his class, answer all the questions, you know, go to his office hours every mm -hmm. single time. I like cared so much about doing well and learning this material. And he saw it. He adopted me. He taught me like how to look at a syllabus for a program, how to look at, you know, oh, Michelle, you say you want to study mechanical engineering, go to different schools, look on their websites, what are the classes that they require their mechanical engineers to take? Sign up for those classes that are at Hunter. Mm -hmm. I was like, ooh. So this was a strategy that I, that I implemented, and it was all my mentor that guided me through how to do this. I took all of my core math and science classes at Hunter College. It was way cheaper than paying for them at engineering school. Right. And so I did two and a half years like that. Um, and then after, after my second semester, I started applying to transfer. I got rejected. I wanted to go to Columbia. They rejected me. That's okay. <laughs> so I'm like, if you're listening out here, Columbia admissions, you lost out on a you good one. Out. Yeah, big she time. Re she remembers. I remember. It's okay. My boyfriend was a Columbia alumni, so I got one. Listen, I I actually wanted to go to NYU when I was in 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 high school. That was like my dream school to go to. And to this day, I think my parents, because my parents realize how much it costs. And they very much dissuaded me. I think at the time it was like 40K. And again, as like a 17-year-old, you're like, yeah, absolutely. Student loans, I'll pay it back later. And my parents were absolutely not. Yeah. You're not going to pay that back later. And uh, and they dissuaded me. So I ended up going to UNC Chapel Hill, which is a very good school. And, you know, it was a way cheaper, uh, way cheaper public true. school in North Carolina. So, but I, sometimes things are not meant to happen for a reason. So. Ain't that the truth? <laughs> that is so the truth. So I, with, with my first transfer rejection, I realized I needed to be more competitive because I was sure, like I wanted to do well and I wanted engineering school, but so does every other brilliant kid all over the world that has access to apply to all of these engineering schools. So I retook my SATs in the middle of the school year. And I was like, uh, gosh, when I retook my SATs, I think I was 27. So my first semester was 26. So that's when I officially started. Um, so I was like take in a high school gymnasium with a bunch of kids that were like 11 years younger than me, you know, in my hoodie taking my SATs. And I did that to make my transfer application more competitive. Um, my, my scores from before were so old that I didn't have the, um, what was it, the writing section. And quite frankly, I didn't take school as seriously when I was in high school as I did right. now, you know. Um, so I did that, um, and I kept reapplying. I think it was my third semester that I applied that I actually got accepted to transfer into Stevens, and that was after getting waitlisted from the semester before. Oh, my God. It was like pulling teeth just to try to get into engineering. But I finally get into Stevens Institute of Technology. It's a small engineering accredited university in Hoboken, New Jersey, which I loved. Uh, they have tons of hands-on elements in the curriculum that really prepare you not just to like learn engineering concepts because that's great and all, but how to implement things, right. how to do things, which is the critical factor that um, sets some engineers apart from others. Um, so once I got into Stevens, I was like cranking. I had knocked out all my core math and science classes and I just started knocking out all of the engineering classes. Um, I did a couple of internships. Uh, my first internship I got thanks to my mentor helping to connect me. So I can't you know, comment enough how important it is to have a mentor when you're going through any educational yeah, process, yeah. especially if you're doing a career transition or something like that. Um, and after, um, so I did uh, one summer at the Air Force Research Lab doing physics research. Um, I did another summer after that. And then I, uh, I asked my mentor, 
I really want to do engineering. I love physics and all, but I'm trying to pivot, you know? <laughs> and I ended up, uh, they sent me to Princeton, uh, where I got to work as an engineering contractor. And they sent me there originally to uh, do experimental physics versus theoretical oh. physics. And I'm like, okay, well, that's more hands-on than theoretical physics, but it's still physics. <laughs> and I really wanted to build stuff. Yeah. So I, within like my first couple of days on my job at Princeton, I had a grad student who was showing me what his experiment was. And it was really creepy, but it's interesting. So they were doing a laser vision correction concept and I, I they have to be still developing this or at least ready to release it soon but it's cool but it's an alternative to LASIK uh -huh. and the way that they were testing this is this grad student would go to the butcher and he would get a bunch of pig eyes from the butcher and bring them back and he would test this process on this pig eye very interesting. So he shows me. He shows me the. I mean, the interesting is definitely one word to describe. Yeah, that, I was sure. just like, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah you so know, every, answering every... a lot of weird questions. Like, I promise it's for a science experiment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. So uh, it was interesting, and the physics was really interesting. But I was like hell bent on building something. Mm -hmm. I wanted this hands-on experience as part of my educational background. And so I was watching this guy run this experiment, and it was a laser experiment where he's got a laser coming through an optical table, and it pass it like the laser bounces off of a mirror and then goes through a lens, and then it passes through an aperture, and then the laser ultimately enters the pig eye and is like burning the pig eye. So it's making nasty, sizzly noises. Oh my God, so gross. <laughs> I love the sound effects. Oh, like, really. Yeah. So I can love the sound of bacon in the morning. <laughs> It was really gross. <laughs> so I'm watching this guy, though, and I'm like, okay, this is cool. Look at him. There he turns this knob, and then he waits until the laser gets to this point, and then he moves this lever, and then he waits till the laser gets to this point. And I'm like, I can totally automate this. You know, and I, like, I went off, and I, I spent all weekend Googling. What if I want to design a bunch of little mechanisms to turn that knob for him and to move that lever for him? When the laser hits this part, have this knob turn when it exactly. hits that other part. Okay. And so I just started Googling, all right, what would I buy? If I had to buy parts to make this happen, what would I buy? So I was like, I'm going to come up with a cost estimate, and I'm going to pitch it to my boss. So I ended up estimating that I could really build something that was good enough for their level of requirements for under $1,000. So I go, to, I go to my boss the next week, and I'm like, hey, thought about it, and like, I'm really happy to help you uh, reduce this data from this experiment. But if you give me $1,000, I think I can build a series of mechanisms that will partially automate it. Can I do that? And he was like, yes. That's awesome. And I was That's like, awesome. oh, heck yeah, I'm <laughs> building a robot, baby. <laughs> and so that was actually my first hands-on job where I took, I took my little uh, calip my calipers, which is a little precision measurement instrument, and I measured the dimensions of everything on the table that I wanted to interact with. I created CAD models, three-dimensional models of all of those elements, and then I designed little components to grab onto them. And since I had taken my computer science classes, I was getting good in programming. So I wrote software that did image processing to track the laser's position in real time so that I could send commands to my little motors to actuate each one of my little mechanisms at the right time. And I did it in like three weeks because I was obsessed. I like did not stop working each day. That is awesome. So I finished this project and my boss was like, thrilled because he thought I was going to do like data analysis. I just built like custom robots for him for dirt cheap. 
So he's like, oh, I have another experiment across the hall. You want to do this one? And I was like, heck yeah. So I ended up becoming a part-time contractor through the end of my college uh, career um, by coming up with uh, these implementations for these mechatronic subsystems uh, for these laser experiments. Did that title exist back then? Because I think mechatronics, I think like something that you would see like in the Transformers movie or something. <laughs> like, is that a new title or um, or did they have that specialty back then? I think the, the term's been around for some time. Okay. I don't know how long, probably longer than I've been alive, if I yeah. were to guess. But it's definitely just, I think, doesn't get a lot of exposure. Most people right. just think robotics. Or like just mechanical engineering. Like I think right. that's yeah. the title that everybody kind of associates with that word. So. Right. And then when you're like over here in mechanical, you realize that that's so broad. Right. There's right. So, so many, many different elements. Yeah. Yeah. yeah um, I know that since coming to JPL, I've learned like, oh, wow, there's a lot of different types of mechanical yeah. engineering. You know, there's, there's thermal, which is its whole own monster. There's materials, which is its whole own monster as well. There's structures versus mechanisms. And like all of that falls under mechanical. And you have to be familiar with all of it to do any one of them. But they're all uh, specialties that you can focus on within mechanical. So you have that internship, you build yes. this robot. At what point, I mean, did you know about JPL? I, we have a lot of JPLers here that it's like their dream to come work at JPL because so, they want to do that kind of work. When did you sort of find out about that work happening here? I wish I could say that was me, but it wasn't me because I, I never... I never would have imagined that I could have ended up at a place like this. It wasn't on my radar. It wasn't a dream of mine because it wasn't a possibility to me. Right. And even though, so I, you know, I, I get out the other side of um, my junior year. So going into the summer before your senior year is I started, you know, talking to other students and I'm asking, well, what are you doing? What are your plans? You know, and people are going to grad school or they're starting to interview. And I had no idea what to do. I assumed that in order to have like a real engineering job, you have to have a master's degree at least. So I started looking into, all right, well, I'm going to have to apply to get into some master's program. And I didn't know how to do that. I was like, do you have a mentor? Do you have to like find a mentor that likes you first? And then if he'll work with you on a project, then you apply to the school? Like, how does this work? I had no idea. So I started doing research, though, to try to figure out, well, what school would I want to go to? And I knew I wanted to be at a small school because I really liked that experience at Stevens. And I wanted to be at a technical school and I wanted to do engineering. And my first choice after doing some research was Caltech. I wanted to get a Ph.D. from Caltech so bad. <laughs> oh, yeah. JPL? JPL uh, managed by Caltech. Managed and operated by Caltech. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely my first choice. Uh -huh. You know, I mean, like... So you really found out about Caltech before exactly. you found out about JPL. Yes, that's exactly right. So I have, at this point, again, this was years ago. At this point, I had one of my girlfriends that I had met from modeling had managed to break away from modeling, and she went to school. And she went on to become a, a medical doctor. She's a medical doctor now. Wow. She's amazing. I love her. Wow. So she's the first one that got an education. So I call her up, and I'm like, Magdalena... I want to do a master's, but I, I have no idea, like, how do you apply? Like, how did you apply to your uh -huh. medical school? I don't know. Is it the same? And I, and I mentioned to her, I want to go to Caltech. And she said, oh, you know what? One of my best friends, her husband works at JPL. I wonder if maybe he might have some advice for how to get into Caltech. And I'm like, 
oh, that would be awesome. Can you connect us? And she's like, sure. So she gives this guy my email. And um, he emails me and he's like, hey, uh, Magdalena said that you might want to talk about Caltech. Send me your resume. I want to see what you're interested in. I'm like, sure. I send him my resume. He emails me back and he says, you have a really good resume. Have you ever thought about employment at GPL? And you were like, what's a GPL? I'm like, excuse me. (laughs) Dramatic pause. (laughs) No, I have not thought about that. What? Like, what? And so I tell him, like, no, I haven't thought about that. I thought it was, like, not viable. I thought I needed oh, so a you, master's. Yeah so, you, yeah, so you did know about JPL. You just thought it was so out of the not picture. Not even a possibility. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. And so I was like, uh, no. And he's like, well, you know, I don't know you, so I can't recommend you. But I'd be happy to pass your resume along to somebody, you know, me- mechanical to see if anybody's interested in hiring you. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> sure. The next day, I get an email from Sean Goodman, who later became the head of all mechanical at JPL. You know, and I've got this email address in my inbox that says like jpl.nasa.gov. And I'm like, I must have left out of my seat. What is this? (laughs) And the email says like, I've got your resume in my hand and I would love to schedule a time to get on the phone with you and talk. And I'm like, huh, okay. You know, and he's like, I'm going to have somebody reach out to you soon. And then it was like an hour later, I get an email from Josh St. Vaughn, uh, who uh, at the time that I got hired, uh, I think he was my, the section manager for my section. Mm-hmm. And he emails me and he's like, I want to call you and, and in an hour. It was like the same day. I'm like, ah. <laughs> <laughs> so I get on this phone call and, I, you know, I have this brief phone interview, which felt like it must have been 15 minutes long. And they're like. We want to fly you out and interview you in person. Are you down with that? And I'm like, yes. Yeah. <laughs> what? You're willing to do that? I was just like, the whole thing was like shock. I hang up the phone and I was literally jumping around my apartment, like screaming, yelling. I'm calling all my girlfriends. I just talked to NASA. Like, I was, <laughs> you got to be kidding me. You know, I thought I've got like years more education ahead of me before I can mm-hmm. even have any of these conversations. So that was shocking. And then fast forward a couple of weeks, I'm here at JPL. And I mean, in addition to that, uh, what I hadn't realized is I was so focused on trying to improve my transfer application, you know, improve mm-hmm. my SAT scores, do the best I can, get hands-on experience. My resume kicked butt at the time. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that yeah. because I, you know, I, I definitely had imposter syndrome. I felt super different and I felt like an underdog, like I had to do more. And so I just couldn't fathom that I was good enough as it was, and I was better than good enough as it was. Man, mm-hmm. I could have slept 10% more in college, and I would still be here, I swear. Um, Why do you think that uh, it, it's 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 yeah. sadly kind of common, yeah. you know, this idea of, like, imposter syndrome? Like, what? why do you think that we have some of that? Is it the you know, going to college later in life, feeling like you didn't follow the, the traditional path? All, yeah, all, both of those things. Even, you know, I was an average of 10 years older than all of my peers in every class. Um, and so I felt different. Um, I, God, even to the Google thing, I had this epiphany. Um, I think it was my third year. It was when I was finally at Stevens. So I was at least three years, you know, into college. And I was doing thermodynamics homework. And I got stuck on this really hard problem. And I'm like scratching my head. Man, this one's really hard. And so I I call one of my fellow classmates, and I'm like, hey, have you done the homework yet? And he's like, no, not yet. And I'm like, man, I'm really stuck on this one problem. It's super hard. When you get to it, will you let me know how you you solve it? And he goes, well, Michelle, why don't you just Google it? 
<laughs> and I go, excuse me? And he goes, yeah, Google it. I'm like, what do you mean, Google it? He goes, copy the problem, paste it into Google, and hit search. <laughs> and I'm like, uh, okay. And so I proceed to do so. And then I'm like, what? All the solutions are online? For freaking everything. I'm for free. <laughs> in college doing all this stuff the hard way. All you young kids already knew about Google. Man. Listen, mm. the most recent thing we, we uh, Googled and watched on YouTube was how to cut a dragon fruit. So there is literally everything. <laughs> yeah, literally. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, um... Yeah, so that, that was, was your descent into JPL. That's yeah. how you really learned about JPL. You were looking for really a master's degree and all of a sudden this opportunity. You came here as an intern? Is that no, correct? No, I or? didn't. So, I mean, it was... They just... Full-time job. The full-time wow. job. And it was like, usually they, they like to hire people after having been interns. Uh, having an internship at JPL is an amazing opportunity because it gives you the chance to learn about JPL while you're a student, ramp up. You know, versus being thrown in kind of the deep end, more so like I was, which was still fun. Don't get me wrong. Um, but being an intern uh, is a great learning right. opportunity. Oh, my gosh. Uh, I had good internships, but I would have loved to have had a JPL internship. Yeah. So I, when I interviewed, what I didn't realize is because I had an interdisciplinary background and because I started at Hunter, and at Hunter, there was no engineering. So I was a physics major, computer science minor. And I took three classes of C++, so I knew how to code pretty well for a Mechie. Um, and then I had this physics research background. So my resume, when it got to JPL, and they, mm -hmm. they had me interview with four different divisions because I can kind of fit in different areas. Yeah. So I had two days worth of interviews. The first day, I must have been here from like 7 a.m. till 4 p.m. I was so excited and anxious. I did not pee one time. <laughs> <laughs> Sitting up super straight by the end of the day. Um, uh, not recommended, you know, for if you're yes. applying for a job at JPL, please, please take your bathroom breaks. Yes. <laughs> so day During two, your interview. I was like, okay, between each one, I'm going to ask to go, even if I don't have to go. Yeah. Um, and so it was like right after that, uh, Josh called me on the phone and he was like, we're in the middle of fiscal year change, so we can't send you a paperwork yet, but we're giving you a job offer. So just know that. I was mm -hmm. like, oh my God. I remember I was in class when he called me. I ran outside. I was like running up and down the sidewalk on the phone with my mom crying. I'm like, what? This is crazy, you know? And you're getting to return to Southern California. Oh, which I was so uh -huh. happy about because some of my best friends live here. Yeah. So it was it was such it's meant to be. Yeah, it was really serendipitous. My best friend lives here. She was really happy. So you landed at JPL at yes. a place that you again you didn't, didn't think was possible. Right. And actually to comment on that, I was thinking about this because this was really personally impactful to me. Something that I learned from modeling is that when you show up for a casting. You walk in the door. You know, they look at you. You give them your book, whatever. And they're like, oh, they tell you right away. You know right away. You, you think you know right away what they think of you. If they're not interested in you, they won't even make eye contact. You know, throw your book back at you and shoot you out the door. You know right away. You think. Or sometimes, oh, we love you. You're perfect here. Like, uh, the date and time is this. Mm -hmm. We're going to call your agent and confirm you right now. And so you're thinking, oh, I definitely got that one. You never know until you're there. Because you never know who walks in the door after you or who walked in the door before you or what happens behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. So when you go on castings, you can never take it as anything. You only know when you show up to work the job and then you know you got the job. Mm -hmm. And I learned that to have no expectations doesn't matter what people say to you because they'll give you all the information. And then 10 minutes later, a girl that they like more walks in the door and they're like, forget her. We want this one now. Mm -hmm. And that's the nature of the industry. So... I got this job offer, 
And it's like September of mm-hmm. my senior year, and I have to go through the whole school year and graduate to start working the fall a year from now. And so a part of me honestly did not feel like it was real. And I definitely carried that residual, like, I will believe it when I'm there, kind of oh, like Oh, how interesting. Anxiety. So they gave you a job offer for the following year. Okay, yes. that makes sense. Okay. Which, fun facts for people listening, apply early yeah. because yes. I got an offer a whole year ahead and I got interviewed before all the other students went into career fairs and started interviewing. Wow. So I got in early, which I, I wasn't trying to do it. It's just kind of happened yeah. that way. And you kind of lived the entire year being like, at any moment, they could rescind the offer. But no, they waited. Yeah. It's, so, that, yeah. That's, Michelle, that's a really good thing yeah. to, to point out is that a lot of times people are like, I'm so confused about like how you even do that and, and when do you start recruiting? And for university recruiting, that does start typically in the fall and all the universities, that's when they all have their career fairs. And so that's when all the employers show up. Mm-hmm. So very good call out. And I'm sure our listeners, listeners appreciate that for sure. I, tell, I uh, mentor a handful of uh, students uh, now here at JPL mm-hmm. and I always tell them, I'm like, August, get up, get ready, start sending your stuff. You want to be on top of the pile. For the next year, mm-hmm. for a mm-hmm. job offer when you graduate in, in May or June in the summer. Because okay. they'll pick the top students first. If you are one of those top students, you want to get in before the roles get filled. So I had, so JPL flew me out for a house hunting trip because mm-hmm. I was living in New York. So they relocated me, which was amazing. So even when I was on the airplane flying out for my house hunting trip, like JPL paid for this flight and I'm sitting In the airplane seat, I still didn't believe that this was all going to come into fruition. (laughs) It wasn't until my first day at work, I came to actual lab, and I'm sitting in orientation. I'm like, I am in orientation. And I'm looking around me, and people are introducing themselves, and there's other people that are starting today, and we are being, like, we are being integrated today. And the whole day, Mm -hmm. I was so emotional. You know, and just trying to, like, keep it together, keep it together, because I waited all year to know that it was going to be real. And that first day, I got in my car, I shut the door, and I just started bawling. I cried the whole way home, crying, driving, 15 minutes straight, because all of a sudden, like, now it was so real. And JPL is the kind of place, especially for someone like me who never saw myself Mm -hmm. in STEM, in a professional standard kind of work environment. To find my way into a place so world-class and incredible as JPL in a manner that felt like an accident Mm -hmm. was just, like, mind-boggling to me. And even now, I'm getting teary now. I can hear hear my voice. But, like, even now, I think back, and, God, I I wish I could tell, like, Mm -hmm. shout it from the rooftops. Like, if you just think for one second, like, you know, my thought was, what if I get a technical education? I wonder if I might be able to do some cool stuff. I have hardware in outer space right now. Yeah. And it started with me just thinking, I wonder what I might be able to do. Like, I wonder if I can sit in a chair for a semester. You know, my expectations started right. so low. And then I ended up blowing myself away. And now I'm here. And it's, it's just, yeah, I still don't believe it. That's incredible. That is great. That gives, that gives me chills. And in, in, yeah. in that you're so passionate about it, Michelle, and that's... It's been hugely transformative for my life. I think it also, you know, to me, it's about giving hope to folks out there who, again, haven't had that traditional path and that might be sitting there, even in their mid-careers, thinking that there might be another 
path, things that they were interested in when they were young and that they kind of just left by the wayside because they you know, needed to get a job that paid X amount of money and they just needed to you know, progress in the traditional way. This idea that if you have some inkling of things that you may want to do, like it is ne it's never really too late to just even take that one class, um, right. you know, dip your toe and you never know where two years later you might end up working at a place that gives you that opportunity. You know, the thing about JPL that I think is so emotional and dramatic when you come here is to recognize that the work you're doing is in service of something much greater than than ourselves, right? Exactly. We have spacecraft out there that are literally flying, you know, the farthest man-made spacecraft out there, Voyagers 1 and 2. And that is incredible, you know. And not only did it do incredible science, but it'll be out there forever. Maybe I, that'll be the first thing that contacts extraterrestrial life. I, well, yes. that's, that's what that's what they're hoping for, right? You know, yeah. the golden record. Yeah, I, but, you know, yeah it was like I think we we talked talked about that. Just one of my favorite missions. Just voyagers uh, are amazing. Yeah, but just yeah, incredible, and um, we are. So happy that you landed here at Thank JPL you. as part of your EDL sequence. Um, so now that you're here, you know, you know, great moment. You've been here, you know, for some time. Talk to us a little bit about, you know, the projects that you've worked on recently that maybe are a little bit unexpected, um, that maybe are not related to the spacecraft work or um, but are still related to mechatronics and that I think do tie into this idea of JPLers are here to work on something greater mm. than ourselves. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So um, so once I started at JPL, um, I guess first I'll mention like the bulk of the work that I did in my first few years. Um, my, uh, let's see, the first space baby that I have is a cube satellite, uh, which is Tempest D. Um, so I got to be a mechanical lead uh, for that uh Cube satellite, which mm -hmm. oh god, is it decommissioned yet? It it's, was up in space for a while. Um, it might be done with its mission, but it was successful. And the goal of Tempest D, um, uh, well, for our instantiation of it was to secure funding to then launch a cluster of similar Tempest mm -hmm. D satellites. And they do a uh, temporal storm tracking by following in uh, like series formation and taking time based uh, um, uh, data over storms. You said temporal uh, storm tracking, and all I could think was time travel. Yeah, same, same. You know, we're going to find out one day that they're actually the same, I bet you. <laughs> <laughs> so that was my first space baby. Mm -hmm. And then after that, I dove into uh, bigger projects where I actually uh, took advantage of my short attention span and desire to multitask. Uh -huh. um, and I got to be lean mechanical for four different Earth-observing satellite deliveries pretty mm -hmm. much at the same time, which was a lot of work, but very exciting. Um, those missions are Sentinel-6, which is in space right now, uh, SWAT, which will be launching soon, I hope, which is an amazing uh, spacecraft that the deployment is going to be amazing. And I've got a bunch of actuators that uh -huh. help with the deployment. So. so what does SWAT stand for? Surface Water Ocean Topography. And, and high level, one sentence, what is that mission? going to do with all that? So it measures the water content on the surface of the earth. And God, there's so many applications for this. Um, I'm there, not going to be the best one to summarize all of them. There's a great uh, Von Karman uh, lecture series 
uh, about SWAT, where I learned, um, you know, some of the work that it will be doing, but the importance of measuring that, you know, surface water, which there isn't that much of, you think about it. Um, He was talking about how, yes, the earth is a lot of water, but not a lot of it is like drinkable, usable water, Mm. like surface water. And that's why it's so important for us to measure and understand how it's changing, how it's shifting. So it's going to use these like lasers to measure like the depth of the water, of the surface water specifically. So very cool. We have a whole bunch of lecture series, I think, on the YouTube channel. So uh, feel free to check those out for, for all those details. But so you have several things that are going to be going into space recently. Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of those are inward facing. Yes. So, so again, it's I think a lot of folks know about like the Mars missions that we're doing, some, you know, out of solar system missions that we have like the Voyagers. But it's a lot of Earth science work that is happening about, hey, how do we help our planet? How do we help understand our planet? Which is uh, hugely important. And I feel so much better about myself just being able to contribute to Earth science. We have such a serious uh, climate issue. Um, in our near futures. And so, um, you know, to your question earlier about wanting to do something good with, you know, our brain power education or or what have you, um, helping to build uh, instruments that help to characterize uh, the effects of global warming so that we can respond intelligently to it. Um, You know, there's not a lot that any one person can do about global warming, but it feels really good to be able to contribute to something big like that that can help. Um, NISAR and Maya are the other two satellite uh, missions that I've also delivered hardware on. Um, And so all four of them are Earth observing um, and, you know, are going to be looking at um, waters. Uh, Sentinel-6 is also looking at water levels of our oceans. Um, And uh, Maya is really interesting, kind of going away from uh, looking at water. Um, Maya is looking at aerosols in the atmosphere. So this is going to be focusing on studying the effects of pollution on human health. Um, so not climate, uh, not climate change directly related so much, but definitely related to, you know, studying and improving the effects of our climate on our health. Um, nice. So, yeah, yeah, so those have kept me really busy, honestly. I yeah. think I just <laughs> finished the Maya delivery last year by the skin of my teeth, and that's getting <laughs> integrated. Uh, SWAT, Nisar, and Maya are all getting uh, yeah. doing final testing and integrated, so I, I get called every once in a while to come in and look at this thing or something. Yeah. But um, but the other element, uh, the other project that I've gotten uh-huh. to work on recently, which was I'm probably going to cry at some point talking about this, too. So I'm just going to say that up front. That's okay. Uh, this, that's is okay. A, this is a... Tissue, tissues ready. I, I've got no, tissues is... next to me. <laughs> <laughs> um, so at the beginning of the COVID lockdown, um, there was a group of engineers at JPL. Um, and in particular, uh, two of them spearheaded it. One was Dave Van Buren and the other was Rob Manning. Uh, both of them are amazing engineers here at JPL. Mm-hmm. Rob Manning is our chief of the whole lab. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the two of them started brainstorming, you know, we're a bunch of smart folks. Can't we come up with some kind of something to help with this COVID crisis? And I think the first inkling of the idea started as, you know, can we come up with um, a ventilator that can be made using common household elements or things that you buy at Home Depot? So that was like the very first th- thought. And so uh, they brought um, uh, Dr. Uh, Gurevich in from Huntington Hospital, and he is a pulmonary expert. And he came in and basically told everybody, 
Nobody's going to let you bring something into a hospital that's not FDA approved. What is this Home Depot part stuff? Like, that's not going to fly, you know? And, like, very quickly they realized, crap, we have to, like, really take a different approach if we want to actually be effective and helpful. Um, So that day, my mentor here at JPL called me because he had gotten roped into this project. And he was like, all right, this is getting big. Are you down to come on lab and help us build ventilators? And I'm like, oh, yeah, for sure. So enter Vital, the ventilator project. Um, So, man, where to start with Vital? Vital was an intense, the fastest paced thing that I've done at Mm -hmm. JPL by a landslide. And our idea was we want to come up with FDA-approvable, safe ventilator designs that use only components that will not interfere with the existing supply chain for medical components for ventilators. Oh, wow. So we want to— Makes sense, yeah. But but every component we pick, we have to analyze it, show that it's uh, oxygen-compatible with, like, the pressures and flow rates that we're pushing through it, everything— it, it required a pretty legit amount of analysis. Well, it's a good thing that we're good at doing analysis here at JPL. Um, so we teamed up, and our, our end result was actually that we built, we, we built 12 prototype ventilators of two different implementations. Uh, the first one, we got FDA EUA approval in 38 days after the inception of the idea. Wow. Which was nuts. Wow. We just, you know, worked nonstop around the clock pretty much um, for the greater good, you know. So, so yeah, we, we all buckled down. We worked really hard. Um, we formed a team. We had engineers, scientists. Uh, we used our flight technicians to assemble the ventilators and help clean parts. We used um, our precision spacecraft component cleaning facility to do precision cleaning for all these uh, components that need to be super clean yeah. so that they're not flammable when you run pressurized oxygen through them. Um, so we came up with two concepts. Uh, the first one uses compressed oxygen and compressed air as inputs. Uh, so it's good for places like a, a traditional hospital where they have those pressure, uh, out pressurized uh, gases on the hospital wall. And then the second design, which came, I think it was about a month after the first one, uh, was uh, it only requires compressed oxygen and it has an internal compressor such that actually if you didn't have the compressed oxygen, it pulls air from the ambient environment and filters mm-hmm. it and compresses it uh, to ventilate uh, the patient. Uh, so that's a more appropriate design for like field hospitals mm-hmm. where they're more resource constrained. And uh, we worked with clinicians, um, medical experts at UCLA, Mount Sinai Hospital in New York, and Huntington Hospital. Um, We had to derive from them our engineering requirements. And the requirements in this case came in the form of what are ARDS patient symptoms? And then how do we design a ventilator that is targeted to those particular Mm -hmm. symptoms? And that manifests in a range of breathing frequencies, you know, how fast do you inhale versus exhale, Um, what pressure of air Mm -hmm. are we pumping into people's lungs, uh, given how advanced their ARDS is and whatnot. Um, And we created training manuals uh, to train up nurses on how to use them, and all these whole uh, design packages, basically. So our product at NASA was the design products. You know, we we aren't set up to mass manufacture anything. Mm -hmm. We build spacecraft, and usually there's only one at a time. Um, But we built 12 prototypes so that we could send these out uh, uh, to—we sent 
uh, one to Mount Sinai, uh, and they actually tested it on their mm-hmm. uh, patient simulator out there. That is actually what gave us the confidence to go ahead and submit our FDA uh, authorization request. Um, and then we did a similar thing with UCLA with the compressor design. We had the hospital uh, clinicians actually test it themselves to give us the thumbs up. Um, and then once we got that validation from the medical community and our FDA approval, uh, we submit a call to uh, worldwide manufacturers. And manufacturers submitted um, proposals to Caltech um, that outlined their capability to uh, you know, basically produce and distribute right. these things. And we selected, oh gosh, I think it was about 30 licensees worldwide, ultimately, that we gave free licenses for both designs for them to manufacture. Wow. And then after that, um, I was part of a small group of the Vital team that stayed on board to help basically coach the manufacturers on bringing up the design. How do you test it? How does it work? Um, how do you now train the yeah. people that you're selling it to? Uh, so it was a really interesting kind of handoff that we had with these new industrial medical partners. Um, And it's been incredible. Uh, At this point, um, there's some licensees in Brazil that are pretty advanced. They got Mm -hmm. their local regulatory approval, and they are in production. Wow. And I believe that they've distributed some units um, in the Amazon jungle. Um, There is uh, recently there was a, um, a pledge that I saw to distribute some, like, thousands of units across Africa. Um. It's really inspiring, actually. Yeah, I think it's when I think about projects like Vital. Again, it's this reminder that the work that happens at JPL, yes, it's part of these incredible missions to go into other planets and or spacecraft. But again, the, there's so much research and innovation mm-hmm. that happens at JPL that has never been done before, or is pushing the boundaries of like what can be done, and a lot of that ends up going back out there into private industry, you know, back out there for free. Here you go. We have done all of this research and investment into these technologies. Now go go out and elevate it or use it, you know, to help your community. That's a lot of the work that's happening at JPL, which I think is really incredible. Yeah, and that feels really, really good to be a part of. Right. So, Michelle. Um, since what, let, let, let me think about how I want to wrap this here because your story is really inspiring. I think it's one that people really need to hear, especially whether they're deciding whether or not to sit in that classroom, like you said, or they're like, Hey, I just, you know, I, I think it's been really impressive how you've connected and, and with mentors and, and really leverage that. And that's another really vital, no pun intended, um, you know. Really, uh, Lainey, that was a low blow. I, I know, I know. <laughs> There's uh, too many of these. <laughs> I love it, I love it. You know, I never met a pun I didn't like. Um, but in in some of our in, uh, parting words, what advice do you have to that Per young person out there or or person in mid-career or someone who's advanced in their career is like, I want to do something different. I want to have a career of purpose. What What is your advice to them? If you feel any little tiny bit of that, you absolutely have to pursue it. You cannot hold yourself back. Um, I, I feel like People hold themselves back for a number of reasons that are largely, it can all come back to 
being worried about failing. Well, if you don't try something, you're in the same spot anyways. You have to try things. The worst thing, the worst fear that I have, um, and probably this fear has motivated the crap out of me throughout my life, but one of the worst fears that I have is looking back on my life and feeling like I didn't do everything I could to try to have the life that I want. And, you know, that started for me with modeling. I'm going there. I'm by myself. There's no smartphones. I don't care. I'm going to make it work, you mm-hmm. know, because I wanted to try it. And I'll be damned if I was not going to have this experience that's yeah. totally possible. And that same mentality is what I took when it was like, I've got to try this school yeah. thing. What if I fail? Well, so what? Then I don't go back for another semester. Who cares? But at least I tried it and at least I know. Mm-hmm. And People are so much more capable than they have any idea. We all view ourselves, well, maybe not everybody. I know some people that don't match this, but a lot of people view ourselves (laughs) as being less capable than they really are just because we have self-doubt. And, you know, if you actually go on a limb and push yourself to try something new, you'll be surprised at how much you're capable of. You can totally change your life. I I mean, I I did, So, Michelle, as uh, as part of your involvement here at JPL, again, it's not just the great technical projects that, that you know, you're contributing to. JPL is a, a great community of collaborators and a community of involvement. So talk to us a little bit about, I know you are involved with some of the employee resource groups uh, and maybe spearheading some, uh, you know, some community involvement. Talk to us a little bit about, about that work. Yeah, thank you. Um, I I definitely love engaging with my fellow JPLers. Um, I mentioned uh, that I'm a social animal, which is part of what drew me to language and communication. So I love communicating and and linking up with people. Um, I uh, volunteer to host listening sessions in my section. Uh, Listening sessions are kind of a new concept that's being worked at JPL where um, within kind of local uh, pockets of our working groups, uh, we have these sessions where people are um, invited to just share their thoughts and feelings, anything that they've been you know, worried about or stressed about. It's an open, safe space for f- people to share their thoughts with one another where other folks can just listen and, and show support. Um, so I, I moderate sessions um, uh, for my section, which I find really rewarding, and I think it helps to um, make us relate with each other in a more personal way, which is really critical when we're doing nearly impossible work together. Uh, we definitely want to make sure that we understand and support each other for that. Um, and then I also am, am part of a hopefully up-and-coming employee resource group. I think we just submitted our application last month, and we're waiting for the op- official approvals. But um, the group is for folks um, with uh, disabilities and accessibility issues. Um, I myself was born with uh, two craniofacial birth defects, uh, one being Pierre-Robbins syndrome and the other being soft palate cleft, which was a result of my Pierre-Robbins syndrome in my case. Um, And while those are not uh, recognized as uh, nationally recognized disabilities, they result in me getting basically an annual surgery, and I have a a ton of um, medical specialists and whatnot. Um, And so I, I do have a chronic health condition in that regard. Um, And it's great to be able to relate with other folks that have weekly doctor's appointments and things like that because it can be stressful. 
Um, and, you know, we're working together to improve uh, awareness around lab, increase accessibility for folks that have um, mobility issues or maybe uh, hearing or vision impairment. I know I, I have hearing loss, so I'm thrilled with these great headphones right now. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's They come uh, for free for the, with the interview. No, yeah. I'm just kidding. <laughs> you should have told me that at the start. I, I would have been here. I'm, I'm looking at Colin like, no. in the booth. Yeah, he's shaking his head. Absolutely oh, not. When they go missing, you'll know where to find me. So I think that's great. Again, uh, I, I think uh, if... For, for us, it's also about communicating to folks out there who may want to join JPL because of the great projects that there is so much more. There, we, we are genuinely a, a community of individuals who care about each other, who look after each other, who talk to each other to try to solve, you know, not only the technical problems, but, you know, some of the, the world's greatest problems. And, and that's why I think, you know, the culture at JPL is pretty special. So, um, Looking forward to all of that great work that that you'll be doing here yeah, with us here sure. at JPL, Michelle. So, uh, you know, with that said, I think uh, we'll you know we'll let you go. Thank you. And uh, you know, I know we'll we'll run into into you around lab. So again, Michelle, thank you for joining us today, and and for our audience, again, you know, in, in your car, wherever you're listening you know, snaps to, to Michelle Easter, mechatronics engineer at NASA, at the NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory. And as a reminder, without listeners like you, none of this would be possible. Please be sure to subscribe on wherever you listen to podcasts. We put out a new episode of the season each week and be sure to follow us on social media at NASA JPL Careers. And don't be afraid to dare mighty things from little to big things and explore our careers at jpl.jobs. Talk to you next time.